I'm going to do my best. But what we're going to do is we're going to go through 1 Corinthians from now until perhaps when Jesus comes back. It's hard to know. Um, but uh, I kind of mapped this out and I got uh, about 80% through the book by the end of June uh, in my initial mapping out. And it all, that's always a very best guess scenario. It's probably going to be more like, we'll probably break for summer and get back into it, and then it'll be Advent again before we know it. But, uh, but this is a fantastic book, uh, really, really challenging, um, really relevant to our culture right now in, in very unique ways. There are some things that they dealt with that we're going to read about that we don't. But there are a lot of things that are similar and, and things that we need to take to heart. So as I was uh, studying through this, one of the things that I try to do uh, right at the beginning of, of any preaching kind of series is to read the entire book in one sitting to make sure that I kind of have a big picture view of what Paul is doing. Because sometimes if we just focus on the individual passage, uh, we'll see lots of good truth, but we'll miss kind of the big picture view of it. And so what I've been thinking about doing for quite a bit of time uh, now is to actually show you a video uh, there's a group of guys, um, and I'm sure there's some girls involved. There's, there's two guys that are the kind of the f- spokesmen of the group, and it's called The Bible Project. Uh, it's a podcast. It's a, it's a website. It's teaching videos uh, and, and much more. And so you can go to it's at The Bible Project. Just go to Google, type The Bible Project, and you'll find it. Uh, and, and what they do is it's, it's two guys on the podcast, but on the video that you're about to see, uh, it's just one this week. Often it is two of them, but this time it's just the one guy. And his name is Tim Mackey. And, and what he does is he goes through, I don't know if he's got the whole Bible mapped out yet, but many books of the Bible in about a five to eight minute video, depending on how long the books are or, or sections of the book. So longer books like Genesis or something, they take several shots at. But 1 Corinthians, it's going to be an eight minute video. Um, and the reason that I wanted to show you this is because I think it's extremely helpful uh, for each one of us as we read through Scripture, uh, as we have certain questions about it, to, to see these videos are extremely impacting, uh, helpful for how to interpret them. And best of all, the Bible Project is a completely free uh, organization. So all videos are available to you, and you can show them to your friends. You can tag them in people, or, sorry, you can tag people in them, uh, and and it's just a wonderful resource for you. Now, if you're part of our church, you have Right Now Media, or at least access to Right Now Media if you haven't logged in. And uh, you'll find all these videos there as well. So if you are just happen to be on Right Now Media, you can just search uh, the Bible Project and you'll find it. So what's going to happen here is Shayla's going to put the video on the screen. I'm going to go sit down. And you're going to get an eight-minute overview of the book in a very... Uh, a good way. You're going to get a lot of information in those eight minutes. Um, and I would encourage you to maybe watch it a couple of times over the next coming weeks to refresh your memory. And then we're going to dive into the beginning of 1 Corinthians. So let's put the video up. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. 
and a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities, and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems, and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts, along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters 1 through 4, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter. And people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me. Right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother a number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrongheaded this kind of thinking is. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus's love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters 8 through 10, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences, like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat, that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods. And there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the gospel. He says, our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so if you're in a situation where there's meat that's been dedicated to another god, and there are people around who might watch you and conclude, oh, look, hey, Christians worship Jesus, and they can worship other gods too. Paul says, if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus, and 
you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, listen, as Christians, we believe God is the creator of all things, including that animal. And the temple idols, we believe, are just pieces of wood and stone. So if there's no one around who's going to misunderstand your actions and you're hungry, eat up. You're free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So what makes it okay in one situation to eat but not in the other? The core principle is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died for us. And so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. There were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering, and so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages. There were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God, and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share. And it all was really chaotic, and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters, Paul helps them think, first of all, about the purpose of this gathering to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says the gathering is a place where God's spirit should be working through everybody and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. It's one, but it has all these different parts. And each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the Spirit does through all these different people, all for the building up of the church. That's a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel, God's love. And love is a key word in these chapters, too. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. So Paul applies all this to the Corinthians' problems. Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer, but if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now and the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which means this. 
The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel. So as you can see there, there's a, there's a lot of info in 1 Corinthians and a lot of things that, um, that we can relate to. Um, thinking about even, even just one simple aspect of, of sexual integrity. That would be a huge, huge thing in our culture. Uh, and, and not even just beyond, um, not, not even thinking just the secular culture, but the Christian culture as well, is uh, recent studies uh, indicate that most of young people that grow up in the church think that sex before marriage is not a biblical issue. And, and so we, ha- we want to go through Scripture to be informed by Scripture so that we are making correct decisions, not based on what traditions may have been, but what God has told us to be true. And so over these next number of, of weeks and months, we're going to look at various texts that deal with all these uh, problems. This morning, however, we're actually not even going to deal with any problems. We're just going to deal with the first nine verses, uh, just a greeting that Paul gives and then a thanksgiving there. Because uh, the reason that I want to do this is in just these simple nine verses, which often when we get to a longer letter like this, the greeting and sometimes the, the closing remarks are things we just move right past uh, and, and we read it, but we don't realize how much significance is found in those verses. And here, what we're going to find is that Paul's setting the table for the entire letter So as Tim mentioned in the video, one of these big issues is the issue of love. We are called to love each other. Well, what we're going to see as we study through it, and Tim didn't use this word, but many other commentators do, is that arrogance is one of the biggest problems. And of course, I think arrogance is one of the opposites of love, is where we think we're more important than others, we're not going to love people the way that we're called to, the way that we should. Uh, and so we're going to deal with this idea of arrogance, and we're going to show that, in the, or the scripture is going to show us that in these first nine verses that Paul's going to deal with that in a very unique way. So as was mentioned, and I just want to highlight a few things, Paul planted this church uh, according to the book of Acts in Acts 18. He, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos, and a few others had significant impact on the church in its very early days. But all of those people had moved on to other various uh, cities to plant churches and to teach different groups of people. And so Paul received uh, word from someone that the church in Corinth was not doing very well. And so this is uh, his response to that. Uh, Commentator Frank Thielman writes this way. He says, The church in Corinth was plagued with serious problems of division, sexual immorality, and social snobbery. Around the same time, a letter arrived from the Corinthians that displayed considerable theological confusion about marriage, divorce, participation in pagan religions, and order within corporate worship, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And of course, that just sums up really, really quickly what Tim just showed us on the video. Now, one thing that's important to note, and I'll I'll note this when we get there, but I also want My hope is that when you go home that you actually read this and that you don't just read the nine verses that we're going to read now, but that you actually look through the book of Corinthians over the next number of months. And one thing you're going to find is there's sections that are in quotations where Paul says something and it seems a little bit confusing. Why would Paul say that? And what we're going to learn here is that actually 
a lot of what Paul says in those quotations are responses of things that the Corinthian people thought were okay based on the report that was given to them. And so then we start to understand, oh, you think this is correct. Paul's correcting it and saying, no, actually, this is what's correct. And sometimes the grammar and things, uh, as it's translated into English, we go, this doesn't make sense. What's happening? And when we understand that it's quoted from things they have taught or believed or have said publicly, uh, it starts to make more sense. So, and I'll, I'll talk about that more when we get uh, to that. Uh, Thielman also notes in his study that uh, individualism was a huge problem, that the strong, and I strong, we'll use that in quotations, are, are more concerned with their own rights than with the rest of the church. They were marginalizing the, whether it was the poor or whether it was someone on a different social, economic thing. We're not really sure, but, but they were marginalizing this group of people. And he sums it, uh, Thielman sums it up by saying this, it revealed that their own social advancement rather than the gospel's advancement was their top priority. And I think often in our own culture, it seems like we try and fight for that too. Is the ultimate motivation here is the gospel, is that Jesus would be exalted, that we would teach what scripture teaches about who Jesus is, and that the gospel would get all the focus, that Jesus would get the glory and not us. But so often, and especially um, in today's kind of celebrity status world, is we elevate certain teachers and certain pastors and certain theologians, and, and we just think they're the only person that's right. And, and we, we elevate them to the point where they start to get puffed up in their own pride and think that there's something great, and they stop teaching what the Bible says, and they start relying on their own ability to communicate and their own talents, and all of a sudden, things start to fall apart. And this is what has happened in Corinthians. So the, these first nine uh, verses here, let's read them together. Chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, when I was reading through this, that was something that, that I read, but I just kind of skipped over because it was kind of like I want to deal with the issues. I want to see what Paul's trying to correct, and, and, and that's just where my focus went. But there's so much in these verses that set the table for the rest of the book that, that we need to know. Simply put, it's an arrogance problem that we find in the church. Elite Christians were believing they had more value and worth than others, and so they were more important. What Paul does here in these verses is that he actually deals with their arrogance without actually 
dealing with their arrogance head on. He takes a different approach to it. And I think it's a very effective approach. Um, Often, when we come across someone who's just very, very arrogant, uh, we want to bring them down by elevating ourselves. And that's never an effective way. It it doesn't work. Um, Sometimes we try to, to go, you are thinking way more highly than you ought of yourself, and we start attacking. And again, that is not very effective. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to take the focus not on the Corinthians. He's going to take it on Jesus, and he's going to say, when you stand before Jesus, you will see who you really are, and you'll see your correct standing. And so let's continually put our focus on Jesus, because in doing that, our own arrogance will get less and less and less, because we'll be humbled to realize who Jesus is and how powerful he is. So that's what he is about to do. And so when Paul says at the beginning, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and her brother sought this. When we read that first thing, it might sound like Paul's trying to say, no, 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 I'm an apostle and you're not. It almost sounds like he's trying to elevate himself to say, look, I have authority over you. You have to listen to me. But the rest of these verses in this intro show that is not to be the case. And in fact, in verse 9, Paul kind of clarifies that a little bit. And we'll get there in a second. What Paul is saying in verse 1 is this. Paul called by the will of God. Paul is called by the will of God, not of his own choosing. Paul wasn't saying, because I am something, you have to listen to me. He's saying, because God has called me, because he has qualified me, because he has shown me, because he has spoken through me, because of that there's authority in these words. Not because of himself. And this is something I think we need to learn uh, in our Christian culture is that we can have boldness and we can be courageous to speak the words of the Scripture because we know they're true. We know they're right. They're not our words. They're not what I would choose. And, and I bet you none of us would, would, if we were God, had chosen to do things the way that God chose to do them. And so it's not like I'm saying I want to do this or I think this. I'm saying this is what Scripture says. And I can stand firm in that. And I don't have to apologize for that because I don't have to apologize for God. Because God loves each of his creation desperately and wants to be in relationship with him. And this is the most effective way to do that. Not because, or not by something that I'm going to do. Not by something that I'm going to say, but by the words that Scripture teaches us. Paul also mentions uh, our brother Sothness in here. And, and we're not really sure. There is one other mention of a Sothness in the book of Acts. We're not sure if they're the same person or not. But probably it's simply a traveling companion of Paul who acted as his scribe for this letter. Uh, often Paul used someone else. Uh, you'll see at various times where Paul will say things like, look at, uh, look at the large letters that I'm writing with my own hand. And, and that would be a unique thing for Paul, whereas most of the time, He's just dictating to somebody and he's writing it down. So like I said, what's the best way to focus on the arrogance that we have in our own hearts that needs to be dealt with? Well, Paul is going to do this by showing the greatness of God. How how could we possibly stand arrogantly before God? In the book of Revelation, um, we see when John has his vision, he falls on his knees and falls on his face and realizes his unworthiness. In Isaiah, in chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah uh, has a vision of the Lord, and he says this, 
Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, the prophet, one of the only ones who, who seemingly is listening to the voice of God in those days, says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. As he recognizes, as we all would, when we look at the glory and the goodness of God, we see ourselves in a much more accurate light. Now, I say this all the time, but uh, we are called, we as Christians are called to be ambassadors for God. We are called to represent God to the nations. And, and literally in Banff, that's a very easy thing to do because the nations are here, you know, COVID notwithstanding, is there's people from all over the world here all the time that we can interact with. And we are to be his ambassadors. We are to, as the Old Testament says, often as the New Testament does state as well, is that we're called to be holy. The irony here, of course, is that Paul's dealing with this book because he's saying to the Corinthians, you're called, right? Uh, you're called to be God's ambassadors. You're called to be um, people that stand out and that represent Christ. And, and the irony is that they're actually not. They're following the ways of the world. They're using worldly and humanistic logic to, to determine their problems. And I think the same is often true of us. It's so easy to just go to our human brain and logically try and sort out a problem from the way that the world has taught us how to do it, rather than how God has taught, it to, how God has taught us to do it in Scripture. Is we're, we're supposed to see things very differently. We're supposed to have a completely different perspective than others. And so COVID is the example, is COVID should not determine how we choose to live our lives because we should show people that, you know what, this is just a circumstance. This is just something that's happening in the midst of something far greater and far bigger. And despite the difficulties that we're facing, though there are difficulties, we have a God who loves us desperately. Crisis is often the best place to turn or to show people who God is. And so this is actually quite an opportunity for us to stand out to be holy. So Paul moves on to a prayer of thanksgiving. He shows them it's not about them, but it's about God. Interesting that Paul gives thanks. Uh, it says, I give thanks to my God always for you because you're an awesome group of people. That's not what it says. It's really quite interesting as he gives thanks to God for the Corinthians because of the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus. Is he's thankful for them, but not because of anything that they've done, but because of what Jesus has done for them. Like, it's so interesting to see that. He's, he's taking the Corinthians out of the equation. He's saying, I thank God for you because of what God has done for you, not because of what you do, not because of who you are, but because, well, because of who you are in Christ, not because of who you think you are outside of that. Too often uh, in our own lives, it's very easy to stand on our own accomplishments, to say, here's the things that I've done that, that matter. And, and even in the church, we can do this. We can spiritualize it, and we can um, sort of kind of half take the credit and, and then also half give it to God. And we can go, man, our church is growing, and, and we have to have an expansion built because of the wonderful ministry that we are doing. When the truth of it is, it's actually the ministry that God is doing that he's just entrusted to us. We're just stewards of that. And so for us, it's important always, God, thank you for what you have done through me in Jesus Christ. 
The simple reality is the only reason I can do anything for God is because he has graciously given me his son, Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can do those things, but I can't on my own. Paul says, in every way you are enriched. And, and I came across this by Camp and Rosner. They write, to, to be given grace is to be enriched in every way. To be given grace is to be enriched in every way. God's grace impacts every single aspect of our lives. And, and here in verse 5, Paul kind of focuses in on two things, in all speech and all knowledge. And it's interesting that he does that. And when you study the works of Paul, usually in the greetings, it's a more generic thing. But here he highlights two specific things. And so that should make us go, oh, I wonder, I wonder why he's doing that this time. And O'Brien writes this, the kinds of wealth that are mentioned here are those which made the strongest appeal to the Corinthians. Paul is using this idea, you have been enriched in all speech and in all knowledge, to grab them, to get their attention, to show them. In all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And many of your translations will have a little dash before, right before verse 6 and right after verse 6, as it's like, here's the thought, and then in the midst of that, there's just this little comment. And that's how I read it the first time and just moved on. But as I was going back and, and going through verse by verse and reading this, I came across somebody who wrote this, and this is incredible. L. Morris wrote this. The gospel is the good news of what God has done. All that the preachers do is pass it on, bear, wit bear their witness to it. That's all we do. And again, what that did is that humbled me in that moment to read that and go, oh yeah, that's literally all I do is I bear witness to that which God has already spoken. The day that I start to trust my own self, that I can reveal something to you to make you grow spiritually and, and to make you mature is the day that I need to stop preaching. Because it's not about me and what I think. It's about what God has already spoken. Now, because we live, you know, 2,000 plus years from um, some of what is written in the New Testament, is we, we do need to study it. And, and I hope what I'm able to do is bring some context to it and help us realize why the words are written the way they are and what the writers are actually saying uh, and, and how it impacts us. But I'm not changing any of those words. I'm just bearing witness to it. And that was deeply humbling to me, and, and I think that's what Paul's getting at here. But then in verse 7, we have the answer to that. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. B. Winter writes this, as a result, they are not deficient in any of the gifts necessary for the ministry they perform as they wait not for the ending of their lives by an, by an inevitable event, but for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I was just having a conversation just last night with somebody who just reached out to me that I haven't spoken to in years. Um, that I went to Bible college with. And, and we were just chatting about a few things. And this verse popped into my mind because of something that he said. Whatever situation you have been placed into is God has put you there and God has equipped you for that moment. That's hugely important that we would realize. COVID has changed a lot of things for us. 
But God is equipping us in those moments to do ministry effectively in that way. So instead of looking at it and going, man, we can't, we can't do chili night anymore, and we can't, uh, we can't have Sunday school, and we can't even invite people to church right now, all of those things are really just focuses on how we used to do things. When the way that things are now has not caught God by surprise, as Ernie mentioned before. Is God is, he, he knows exactly what's going on. And he's using this for our good and for his glory. And so he is equipping us to do ministry in this unique time, in the context and position that he has placed you. Maybe a different way to say it is God didn't put you in a position and then walk away from you and now you're going to fail. He's put you in something so that he can use you for his good. We're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now again, that's said in the context of community. And Paul's going to deal with spiritual gifts later on in the book of Corinthians. Um, one of their issues was they were elevating certain spiritual gifts and then pushing other ones aside. And Paul uses that body analogy to show that all of them are necessary for the upbuilding of the whole church. And the same is true for us is, is even though we're in our own homes right now and, and we're not able to do ministry the way that we have done, how can we be creative? to gather together so that we can meet the needs of our community in Banff, ultimately meet the spiritual need that's there. Is how can we do that? We shouldn't just press pause and go, we'll just wait until things get back to normal. Because there's always a new challenge. There's always a new obstacle. There's always something that happens next week, next month, next year that changes everything for our lives. And so how are we going to adapt to that? This is one of the reasons that uh, every month when it's kind of nearing our board meeting, I ask that you would pray for our board, that we would have wisdom. Because we don't need our own ideas. We need what God's doing. And so when we gather together and when we say, you know what, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do this, is it can be very easy to get an idea and then defend that idea and then take it personal when someone else disagrees with your idea. Rather, let's go, God, what would you have us do in these moments? And then we share things, and then we pray about those things, and, and we hope that God gives us direction and leadership in those things. We need God's wisdom in everything that we do. God will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thielman writes, they have already been justified and in a sense even sanctified so that no one will be able to bring a charge against them at the day of judgment. Is that, that is true of us as well, is that nobody can bring an accusation against us if we are found in Jesus Christ. Because all our sins have been forgiven. All of them. We can stand, uh, in Hebrews it says that we can boldly approach the throne of God because of what Jesus has done for us. We can boldly approach that throne. Not because I can go, man, I've done a lot of good things and I didn't do very much bad. No, we boldly approach because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover everything. And so when somebody tries to say, you couldn't possibly do that, or you couldn't be part of that church, or, or I never would have thought that you would do, you know, like whatever, any of those things that make us feel less about ourselves is we're buying into a lie. We have to turn back and remember, yeah, I was never, I was never worthy, but Jesus' blood is what makes me worthy. It's not about me. It's about him and what he's done. 
And I think that should actually be the greatest uh, example of, of being a new creation is that when we look vastly different, when we've grown and matured and people look at us and go, man, I never would have believed you would do that. We can go praise the Lord that he is doing something great and something good and something that you wouldn't believe. And yet here we are. Paul finishes it by saying, God is faithful um, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's because God has called us, not because of ourselves, not some initiative that we have done. It's because God has called us. And in the same way, we look back to verse 1, and I said I would mention this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. Down in verse 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Is God calls us all, and Paul's going to clarify this later, and I'll deal with this again in spiritual gifts, but God has called each of us to unique ministry at unique, at unique times, in unique places, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus so that we could take and make known to our culture who Jesus is. And we have been called into that. And so that's how we need to remember. So Paul's dealing with arrogance but without actually dealing with it. Instead of saying, you Corinthians, you're so arrogant, you need to humble yourselves, he just goes, I'm just going to deal with God first. You are called, and you are loved, and you are sanctified, and you were given every spiritual gift that you need through the blood of Jesus so that you could accomplish the things that God has for you. The focus is just entirely on him and not us. And so as we start going through this, and as we start dealing with uh, division, with sexual immorality, with uh, idol worship, with all these other various things. It all comes under a correct and a healthy view of realizing who God is and what he's doing in our lives. So may each one of you this week, as we, uh, you know, enter into a new year, uh, enter into, uh, I've heard a lot of people say 2020 can close the door and we can move on in 2021. Uh, but at the same time, is our focus is not that 2021 brings good things, it's that God brings good things, and we look forward to that. So let's pray, and let's, uh, let's keep our focus where it should be this week, on the blood of Jesus. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the video that we watched and the big picture view of what happens in the church in Corinth. And God, so many of those, those issues uh, plague our own culture and our own churches. And so as we deal with each one of them individually, uh, as we go through this book over the next months, would you impact our hearts? Would you challenge us? Would our focus not be on ourselves and what we can do? And would they be focused on you? Would we unite together as a church that we could declare the name, excuse me, declare the name of Jesus to our community, to our culture, that we could do it in an effective and in a unique way as this certain season of life has, has required of us. And so God, thank you that you will and you are equipping us for this moment that we find ourselves. God, we are so thankful for you and for all that you are doing in our lives. May our focus be where it should be. We love you. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us this morning online again. Um, we will keep you in the loop as best as we can with the new changes that hopefully are coming here in the next couple of weeks um, with the regulations. And uh, 
just remember that you can always catch up if you miss a sermon online uh, or on our Apple podcasts as well. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you all soon. Bye-bye. He's our rescue.